you have your Bibles, if you would open them to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Mark, chapter 3. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. The passage we studied last week ended with the statement, immediately the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. As Mark writes his account of the ministry of Jesus, he seems to make it clear, he wants us to understand that almost from the very beginning, Jesus faced opposition. The first opposition we see is when he healed the paralytic, when he said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The second time we find them opposing him is after he called Levi to be one of his disciples, and then he ate with sinners and tax collectors. They're like, what's up with this? This is not something a respectable teacher should be doing. The third had to do with fasting, when they accused the disciples of violating the Sabbath, which in fact they had not done. And then last week we saw that they sort of tried to set Jesus up by bringing in someone into the synagogue on the Sabbath who had a shriveled hand to see, in fact, if Jesus would heal him. They watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus meets the opposition with the question, uh, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And they remain silent. Jesus healed the man publicly. He brought the man out in front of all the congregation. And this served only to enrage his enemies who now plot to destroy him. The last verse that we saw last week. Um, A couple things, and one I'll mention a bit later. It's later in my notes. Um, You find that rarely, at least as Mark gives the account, do the opponents, his enemies, speak to him directly. They speak in the third person. Why does he do this? You know, they, they don't confront him. Whereas Jesus is more than willing to speak to them directly. Secondly, we'll see that after he uh, healed the paralytic, when he said, your sins are forgiven, if you look at chapter 2, verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. So after that that first encounter, Jesus goes to the seashore. And today in our passage, after he has healed the man with the shriveled hand, again, he goes to the seashore. So chapter 3, verse number 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. So at this point, Jesus has been in Capernaum, which is along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. So it is natural that we would find a large crowd from that province, from that area, from Galilee, that are following him. But what what comes after this may surprise you. Look at verse number 8. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Mark is giving us all the details, but basically he's like Palestine. In, in a word, Canaan, you know, all the people in that area. Um, Israel consisted of Galilee, of Judea, and Jerusalem was the capital. The neighbors, the neighbors are coming as well. So Edomia in the Old Testament is Edom. 
okay? And there it's E-D-O-M, and here it's I-D-U, okay? It is in the south. To the east, across the Jordan River, Transjordan, those people are coming. And then to the north, the northwest, you have Tyre and Sidon, and these people are coming. People are coming from all over. But Mark wants to make it clear that these are the areas that are represented. There is something worth noting. In verse number 7, there's a large crowd from Galilee. Okay? In verse number 8, there are many people, but these people come from all over. And it can be, and it has been argued, that there's a distinction being made between the Galileans who are listening to Jesus and the, the, the outsiders, if you wish. You have the local crowd, and then you have the crowd from those who have made the trek. Uh, if you're in Galilee, I mean, you still have to walk to get to Capernaum if you don't live nearby. But to come from Jerusalem, to come from Idumea on the other side of the Dead Sea, across the Jordan or from Tyre and Sidon would, in fact, involve uh, somewhat of a journey. Uh, now there is one crowd. It is made up both of local people and those who are from outside the region. And it's at this point that I was reminded of the leper who was healed. You remember in chapter 1, and Jesus says, don't tell anyone, go to the temple, make the sacrifice, you know, let the priest give the testimony. And the man did not listen to Jesus. He disobeyed Jesus. And so Jesus was not able to enter towns because there were so many people. Well, we might have thought, well, that's a bad thing he did. He did disobey. But now we find that instead of being in synagogues, Jesus is now on the seashore. And in fact, there are so many people that... If you look at verse number 9, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. Um, I think the seashore might, in fact, have been better suited for his ministry of teaching than simply being in a synagogue. Verse number 10, for he had healed many so that those with with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Jesus did, in fact, heal many people. And one gets the impression, in part because I think we have the impression, that if they just touched him, they in fact would be healed. When in reality, as we've seen, not only in Mark, but in other studies, uh, Jesus wants to talk. He wants a conversation. He doesn't simply say, okay, all you guys, you're all healed. He wants to talk to them. He doesn't wave a magic wand. Part of the reason for the conversation is to demonstrate Jesus' authority. Because, in fact, if Jesus healed without talking, then what is the basis of his healing? Is he just like the special guy that he has special powers, some type of superhero? No, he is the son of God. He is God's revelation, and he wants to speak. And so with the paralytic, he could have simply said, hey, guy, get up, take your bed, go home. But instead, he says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus ties his authority to heal with what he has to say, his authority in his speech. I think people lost sight of that. I think we often do as well. That conversations are involved, we see in the next two verses, 11 and 12. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. This should remind us of the very first miracle there in chapter 1. Just then, or immediately, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, 
What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you, who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. A couple of things to think about here. First of all, um, in the NIV at least, they're referred to as unclean spirits. Morally and spiritually filthy. They are evil in themselves. Um, and they bring such on the people that they possess. I was raised, and the tradition I think of, I think more in terms of demons. Um, and for some reason, an evil spirit, an unclean spirit, sounds a lot worse than a demon. Somehow a, a demon can almost be, I don't know, uh, calmed down a bit. Um, it can be trained a bit. I mean, somehow it is the evilness of it is sort of leached away. And so I think it is, in fact, helpful for us to speak of evil spirits. When we looked at the question of evil, both in the Kingdom Worldview series as well as we did a series on evil, we had a definition. That which is anti-creation, anti-life, that which opposes and seeks to deface God's good world of space, time, and matter, and above all, God's image-bearing human creatures. So these evil spirits are, in fact, attacking God by attacking those who are made in his image. They refer to Jesus as the Son of God. This is worth noting because this is not a messianic title. I think for the Jews who are around, when the demons say this, they're like, what does that mean? They, they did not, it wasn't in their vocabulary. And so the demons, in fact, the evil spirits, recognize who Jesus is, the Son of God. Another thing, and this is pure supposition, but it has been suggested that by referring to Jesus in such terms, by using his personal name, they were trying to render him harmless. Um, and there are even some Christians today that, uh, and even non-Christians who think, if you know somebody's name, you have power over them. And that's why some people don't want to tell their name. You know, that I'm, I'm not going to tell you my name because that would give you power over me. Um, and perhaps the demons are deluded and they think, oh, yes, uh, if we say his name, we in fact will have power over him. Um, no, that doesn't happen. But the final thing here that's worth noting is that Jesus does not want the evil spirits to be the ones revealing who he is. He will reveal who he is when he wants to on his terms. And in fact, what we find in the Gospels is that it is a very restrained revelation of himself. It is very veiled. Um, people oftentimes have referred to it as the messianic secret. That Jesus doesn't just start out and say, I'm here, I'm the Messiah, I'm here to save you all. That his disclosure comes little by little and he is the one who chooses when he is going to do it and how he's going to do it. The demons thought they could have power over him, but in fact, he has authority, and he casts them out. He throws them out. In verses 13 through 19, we have the appointing of the 12 apostles. But let's begin at verse number 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside. He'd been at the seashore, goes up on a mountainside, and called him those he wanted. 
and they came to him. I've mentioned this before, but this is a, a good place to reinforce it. We need to all know the Old Testament in order to understand and appreciate various aspects of Jesus' ministry. Here is one, Jesus going up on a mountain. He leaves the seashore and he goes up on a mountainside. Mark doesn't tell us the name of the mountain. He doesn't give us a specific location. It is the fact that Jesus goes up on a mountain that is significant. If you look at the Old Testament, you will find that the mountain is a place of revelation. It is a place of redemption. There are a number of examples. The first that comes to mind is that of Abraham when he was to sacrifice Isaac. He's taken up on a mountain. He leaves the servants below. He says, we're going to go up on the mountain. Mount Moriah, which is where Solomon built the temple centuries later. Mount Sinai, where Moses was commissioned and where the law was given. Mount Carmel, or Carmel, in 1 Kings 18. Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal. Are you familiar with this story? Uh, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And so they set up this test. One altar here for the prophets of Baal, one here for the prophet. There's only one prophet of God. And they, they put, uh, cut up oxen for sacrifice and they pray and see who in fact will bring down fire and consume the sacrifice. Elijah goes, you guys go first. And all day they're crying out to Baal. They start cutting themselves. Come on, you need to prove yourself. And finally, Elijah says, okay, it's my turn. And he has people pour water on the sacrifice three times, which is quite remarkable. It was in the middle of a drought. Okay. And then he prays the time of the sacrifice. The prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God of Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you are, O Lord, our God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And finally, there is Mount Zion, the city of God. So mountains are important. So the fact that Jesus goes to the mountain, if we don't know the Old Testament, we're like, oh, okay. You know, he got tired of being by the Sea of Galilee, so he decided to go up you know, higher altitude. Maybe it was cooler. And we, we will miss something really important. It's a place of revelation and a place of redemption. So that's one thing we get from the Old Testament. Here comes the second one. That is, he appoints 12 apostles. Why 12? Why 12? This question is reinforced by what happened after Jesus ascended to heaven. I don't know if you know the story. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has gone to heaven. He's told them to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit. There are 120 of them gathered together, followers of Jesus, who are praying. Peter stands up and he tells them, listen, Judas committed suicide we need a replacement, okay? He quotes from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. May his place be deserted, let there, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. And Peter lists the qualifications. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men 
who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Two questions immediately come to mind for me. First of all, why do they need another guy? Why do they have to replace Judas? 11, 12, you know, what's the big deal? Okay. Um, and then secondly, apparently there are more than 12 people, 12 men who traveled with Jesus. He chooses 12 to be apostles, but there are others who travel along with him. So why 12? Because of the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we saw what Jesus did in the wilderness, he did what Israel failed to do. They were in the wilderness 40 years, and they messed up time after time. Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days. He is tempted by Satan directly, and he overcomes those temptations. In the same way, you have the 12 tribes of Israel who failed miserably, and now Jesus calls 12 men to represent the new Israel. And listen, it may be hard for us because we don't know the Old Testament as well as we should, but those, the Jews around there are like, oh, he chose 12 men? Hmm, I get that. I, I, yeah, I understand that. 12, it's the number of the tribes of Israel. And then he has their callings. Verse number 14 and 15. Three parts. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. First of all, that they are going to be with him, to see him, to hear him, to observe him, to learn from him, not only by what he says, but how he lives his life. And as best we can tell, they did this for three years. They lived with Jesus. And secondly, they are to be sent out by Jesus to preach. You see, those who receive must, in fact, give. They receive the good news from Jesus, so now they are being sent out to preach the good news to the people around Galilee and Judea. And they're to do it with authority. In Matthew's account, Jesus says, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. So they are to be with Jesus. They are to preach with authority, the good news. They've received it. Now they are to share it with others. And thirdly, they are to have authority to drive out evil spirits. By the way, this is something Jesus demonstrated in that first miracle. The people said, what is this? A new teaching and with authority, he even orders the evil spirits and they obey him. So it's not that he's just sending out, okay, you guys spread the good news. They were to do that. But that good news was to be spoken with authority and that authority is demonstrated in that they were casting out evil spirits. So who are these 12 men? Well, Mark gives us a list. If you look at verses 16 through 19, these are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Most of these names, I think, are familiar to us. We don't know a lot about Bartholomew or Thaddeus or Simon the Zealot, 
but we are somewhat familiar with their names. Um, I would point out something that I had not seen before. There are three sets of brothers here. There's Simon or Peter and Andrew. There are James and John, the sons of thunder. I think this was a reflection on their tempers, that they were quick-tempered. And then there is James, I'm sorry, there's Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 14, where Jesus calls Levi, son of Alphaeus, who is a tax collector, we know from the other Gospels this is Matthew. So Matthew and James are brothers. Why, don't, why doesn't Mark say Matthew, son of Alphaeus, and James, son of Alphaeus? Well, because we know who Matthew is. There's more than one James. Okay. So James, the son of Zebedee, makes that clear, and James, the son of Alphaeus. find it interesting. He sends out these, he calls these 12 men, and then he will commission them to go out and preach and cast out evil spirits. There's something I haven't mentioned up to this point in our study of Mark, and perhaps now is a good time to do so, and that is Mark's account is not chronological. Um, so after choosing the 12 men, the 12 apostles, we are not told of them going on mission. But it seems that Jesus returns at this point, at least in Mark's account, to Capernaum. And here we have a weird two-fronted confrontation. The first by family, that is those who are on his side. The second will be with his opponents, those who oppose him. Look, if you would, at verses 20 and 21. Then Jesus entered a house. Well, he was on a mountainside. Okay, so apparently something's happened. He's come back. He's entered a house. And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. This is the first of two wrong views of Jesus. The first comes from those who, in fact, accept him. They, They they are his family. They are friendly toward him. They're not opponents. Um, but they believe that he is out of his mind. And a few verses later, we will see that people say, oh, he's in league with Satan. A very different view. He's out of his mind. Um, I had a full conversation this week with someone who wanted a preview of the sermon from today. What was, what was I going to preach on? And I was talking about this. And the person said, I don't get it. How is it that Mary and his brothers did not know who he was? I mean, how is it that they would say he's out of his mind? I mean, Mary, the Gabriel, uh, Gabriel, the archangel, appeared to her, Simeon in the temple, you know, speaking wonderful words, and all this testimony, and she saw him grow up. Um, how is it that Mary and her sons would come to the conclusion that he was out of his mind? Well, in John chapter 7, we are told that even his own brothers didn't believe in him. That is early on. Um, But what about Mary? How could they reach this conclusion? Let me suggest some things. First of all, Jesus doesn't seem particularly organized. He's not efficient in his methods of ministry. So, for example, we've seen he was in Capernaum and there was a large crowd and 
you know, he goes off to pray, and he can, Simon's like, where have you been? There's so many people. And Jesus is like, we're out of here. We're going to go to other towns. And people are like, listen, you've got momentum here. You know, you're trending. Come on, people are really into you. And Jesus doesn't go that way. Back to John 7. When the, feast of the, Jewish, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the, mirac- the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. In other words, get out there. Okay? You, you, you need, people need to see you. you know, if you want to be a public figure, you, you need to be out there. And Jesus doesn't do this. Contrary to all expectations, Jesus does not do this. And perhaps they're thinking, you know, if I were the Messiah, what I would be doing is quite different than what Jesus is doing. Secondly, Jesus was opposed to the religious establishment. And this certainly doesn't seem the right approach of someone who has been sent by God. These men, the Pharisees, the teachers, the experts in the law, they know the Old Testament, they know Scripture, um, and you are the Messiah sent by God, but you don't get along with them. Uh, Maybe you think a little too much of yourself. Then when Jesus tells the paralytic, and they must have heard of this, your sins are forgiven, it's like, okay, you know, we know that you're a good guy and you're, maybe you're the Messiah, but you know, to tell someone their sins are forgiven, you're just overreaching a bit. Jesus challenged the traditional teachings about fasting and Sabbath. We've seen this. And this just, this is not how I would think the Messiah should act. And then finally, he eats with sinners. I mean, he's got to be crazy. He's, he's losing it. I mean, he could eat with the teachers of the law. He could eat with the Pharisees. People love him, and yet he hangs out with all these people that society would say, in fact, are sinners and losers. Their conclusion is he's lost it. He's lost it. He's out of his mind. Those are the people who like him. What about the people who don't? What do they say? Verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said... And get this, third person, they're not saying you are, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. We know that Jesus has enemies. but They're making the trek all the way from Jerusalem to come to Capernaum to confront him. Um, By the way, it says they come down from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is actually south, so I would say they go up. But Jerusalem is uh, 24 100 feet elevation, and Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. So that's 3,000. Is that what it is? It's a big difference. They come down from Jerusalem. The people see that Jesus has authority to cast out demons, but the teachers of law have reached a completely different conclusion. They're they're convinced he's able to do this because he is in collusion with, he has an alliance with Beelzebub. By the way, some of the newer translations have Beelzebul. We really don't know where this name comes from. Scholars don't know where it comes from. We think the root is Baal and somehow becomes Baal. But in any case, it is the prince of 
demons. Okay. Now, I think one of the reasons, I want to be careful, I don't want to say that they believed this, but maybe they did, but one of the pieces of evidence that Jesus was, in fact, casting out demons by the power of Satan is that the demons recognize him. They recognize him. And it's like, what other explanation do you need? Because the teachers of the law could say, we've confronted people who are demon-possessed, who have evil spirits. They don't know our names. They knew Jesus' name. Uh, Therefore, they must, in fact, be on the same team. And Jesus answers them. Verse 23. So Jesus called them and spoke to them. Okay, he's not talking about them. He's talking to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Jesus' answer has three parts. First of all, he refutes the charge. Okay? As I said, he's speaking to them, not about them. Okay? And he says, you know, basically what you're saying is ridiculous. If Satan casts out Satan, then it's all over. He's lost, okay? This is not doable, okay? It can't stand. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. The end has come for Satan. I know those of you who know U.S. history, this may sound familiar. This was from, this is repeated in a famous speech by Abraham Lincoln in 1858. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become one thing, all one thing or all the other. And Jesus says to these people, your position is ridiculous. If Satan is casting out Satan, then it's all over. Okay. So what's the answer? It's in one verse, in verse number 27, the explanation. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. This might seem a bit puzzling, a little uncomfortable, because it seems that Jesus is referring to himself as a robber, but it's an analogy, okay? His point is clear. If the person is home, Okay, and this is before the advent of modern technology with a gun or things like that. If the owner, and particularly if he's a strong man, if he's home, yeah, you're not going to rob the place. Okay? What you're going to do is go in and tie him up. Okay? So there's no, you know, he can't oppose you, and then you take everything that he has. Okay? Jesus came into the world. He overcame the temptations of Satan. He casts out evil spirits. He restores that which Satan has seek to ruin. What Jesus is doing and has done is binding Satan and his minions 
to bring salvation. That's what Jesus is doing. He's binding the strong man and taking back what in fact is his. Those who have been possessed by these evil spirits are now set free. They are restored to their right minds. He has brought salvation to his people. The third part of his answer is perhaps the most difficult for us. He gives a warning. Verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. By the way, at the, verse, at the beginning of verse number 28, it says, I tell you the truth. In the King James, it is verily. Um, the word in Greek literally is amen. Okay, that is, what I'm saying is true. It is faithful. You can trust it. What I'm telling you is the truth. And it introduces a warning. Some people call it an exhortation, but it sounds awful, a lot like a warning to me. That one who blasphemes against the Spirit will never be forgiven. I find it interesting, uh, in preparing for the sermon and looking through this, I find it that verse 29 is what people focus on. It's like, wow, what does that mean? That's, I don't understand, you know, if you sin, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. What I find amazing is the verse that comes before it. That is verse number 28. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. Are you serious? All sins, all blasphemies can be forgiven? This is amazing. You know, in the same way that people are like, um, why, why isn't everyone going to be saved? And my question is, no. Why is anybody going to be saved? I mean, the fact that all sins, all blasphemies can be forgiven, I, that's just amazing. It's just amazing. It's hard to uh, accept in many ways and to understand. In part, I think, because we tend to think that some things are unforgivable. Not, not the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that in a moment. But examples in the Bible. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he arranged for Uriah, her husband, to die in battle. Peter denied Jesus three times. Paul persecuted the church. And think of what other people may have done in your life, or maybe what you have done, and you wonder, like, how can God ever forgive that? That seems unforgivable. And Jesus says, no, no. All sins, all blasphemies are forgiven. But why not the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? The context, I think, should guide us here. That those who oppose Jesus credit what he is doing as being the work of Satan. That, in fact, it is the Holy Spirit working through Jesus, but they say, no, 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 it is Satan working through Jesus. They are doing this deliberately. They are doing this willfully. They are unwilling to walk the path of repentance that leads to forgiveness. It is, as one writer puts it, defiant irreverence. And what they've done, without even realizing it, they've painted themselves into a corner we're Americans, we love conspiracies, but imagine someone who has embraced a conspiracy theory. Everything confirms that conspiracy, you know, that theory. And th 
you know, everything that comes up is just more and more evidence. Even if it's counter what you believe, you're like, well, no, see, because that's the other side trying to, you know, everything confirms what in fact you think. So having embraced the idea that Satan is working through Jesus, everything that his opponents see him doing, it's like, yeah, told you. That's Beelzebub. Yeah, I heard he healed that guy in the synagogue, the shriveled hand. Yeah. That's Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And as such, repentance, which is a change of thinking, is out of the question. They will not change what they're thinking. They, in fact, are convinced that they are right. And because they cannot and will not repent, forgiveness is out of the question. To be forgiven, we must turn from our old way of thinking and turn to a new way of thinking. It is to accept that we are sinners and in need of grace and turn to God for his forgiveness. And that's not possible for these teachers of the law. They were saying he has an evil spirit. Having said all that, I would just say that the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is it. There are those who are concerned, perhaps I have committed that sin, and I would say, if that is your concern, then you probably have not. Okay, verses 31 to 35. The question is, who is the family of Jesus? Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. They were here earlier, okay, when they're like, he's out of his mind. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. If you can just imagine the picture, Jesus is in a house filled with people. They're sitting on the ground. His mother and brothers are outside, and they want to see Jesus. Um, and so the word, you know, they, you know, they tell this person on the outside. He tells the person next to him, and it just slowly the message gets up to Jesus. Okay, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Verse 33 who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. If we recognize that Mark's account is not necessarily chronological, it may be that this ties in with what we saw in verse number 21, where his family said he was out of his mind. The house is full, the family can't get in, they're outside, so they send in the message that they want to talk to him. It's obviously an interruption to what he's doing. Jesus is in the house teaching these people that are seated around him. It would be like someone interrupting me in the middle of a sermon. It's it's like, yeah, what we have is more important than what you're doing, okay? Just, you need to stop for a moment because we're looking for you, okay? Um, But Jesus puts this interruption to good use. By the way, he does this time and time again, if you look at the ministry of Jesus. I do want to be clear about something, particularly as Protestants, oftentimes we sort of stumble here. The relationship between Jesus and Mary was one of tender concern. Okay? And if you doubt that, think of Jesus committing her care to John while he's dying on the cross. He is in agony. He's being publicly degraded. 
And one of his last thoughts is, John, take care of my mom. And she went to live at John's house after that time, we are told. However, as close as they were, he would not allow her to divert him from what he knew his heavenly father wanted him to do. So at the marriage, the wedding at Cana, I think she's ready for a disclosure. They're out of wine. Come on, son. Show people who you are. And he's like, you know, woman, my time has not yet come. As close as they were, he did what he knew to be right. And it's true also of his brothers. So he asked the question, who are my mother and my brothers? You all, you all are my brother and brother and sisters. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. By the way, some people have wondered, why didn't he mention sisters earlier? You know, why does he just mention them at the end? Because the sisters aren't there. It's Mary and his brothers. Okay. But he does, in fact, include you know, people like, ah, it's just the men. You know. No, not at all. Who belong to Jesus? Those who do the Father's will. They belong to Jesus. And there's this wonderful verse in Hebrews chapter 2. It's an amazing verse. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. It's great. We belong to God's family. But get this. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. This fits in the category with all sins and blasphemies being forgiven. This is just mind-boggling. Because I can think of plenty of reasons why he would be ashamed to call me his brother. But he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Okay. To wrap this up, people worry about the unpardonable sin. Is it possible that I've committed the unpardonable sin? Um, there are some who think and I, I think I would sort of go toward that camp that this was a sin that could only be committed during the lifetime of Jesus during his ministry that while he was there doing these things they're like oh that's, that's Satan um, having said that if in fact you are concerned that you've committed I, I, I suspect that in fact you have not but I would say why are you focusing on that why don't you focus on the previous verse where all sins, all blasphemies are forgiven? It's very similar to what we read in Exodus where God reveals himself and says, my name is Jealous, and that he will punish the sins to the second and third generation. It's the second, third, or third or fourth generation. And that's what people focus on. Ha ha. The consequences of the sins of the parents will be seen in their children, their grandchildren. Keep reading. And what does he say? And will show mercy to a thousand generations. Yeah, I would say don't worry about the unpardonable sin. Embrace the reality that all sins are forgiven. And if we miss the wonder of forgiveness, we may miss the wonder of being a part of the family of God. We are his children. 
And Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. That's just remarkable. His family thought he was out of his mind. His enemies thought he was being used by Satan. And they both got it wrong. He's the God of all grace. He came to, to tell us the good news. That there is, in fact, forgiveness. We can be the children of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we oftentimes tend to focus on the wrong things as we read your word. It's all important, obviously, but oftentimes we just go in the wrong direction. We worry about the unpardonable sin, and we forget all the pardoned sins. There may be, in fact, in our lives at times when we think, What I have done cannot be forgiven. And that's simply not true. All sins, all blasphemies are forgiven. If we repent, if we turn from them, there is grace found in the Lord Jesus. Our focus, when we're out of focus, points us in the wrong direction. May we, in fact, embrace your amazing grace that our sins are forgiven. And more than that, we are your children. And Jesus isn't ashamed of us. There's certainly times in our lives when we're ashamed of ourselves for what we have thought or what we've said or what we've done. And Jesus is not ashamed to say, this is my brother, this is my sister should drive us to our knees in gratitude as being overwhelmed by the grace you have shown to us. Forgive us, I pray, when we lose sight of these things. And thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of them once again. Thank you for bringing us together today. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. As we walk through the world in the coming week, may we have a sense of your presence and of your grace, your forgiveness, that we are your children. Thank you for loving us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.